The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, we look at contemporary public sculpture as debate has raged about various works in recent weeks. Who is public art for and why does it continue to provoke such strong reactions? I talked to Louisa Buck, the art newspaper's contemporary art correspondent, and James Lingwood from the visionary producers of public works Art Angel about public art, and the artist Olaf Bruning tells us about a work he's made for a hospital in Miami. And for this episode's Work of the Week, the artist Tom Sachs talks about Mondrian's Broadway Boogie Woogie. Before all that, as the holidays get closer, why not give your nearest and dearest a gift subscription to the art newspaper? You can save up to 40% when you buy a subscription for a friend, colleague or indeed for yourself. Choose between the digital-only subscription, full and immediate access to our website and app, or the complete subscription, all the benefits of the digital-only subscription, plus the monthly printed newspaper, delivered direct to your door. If you buy before the 10th of December, you can start the subscription with the January edition. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page. Now, recently on theartnewspaper.com, many of the big stories have been about public contemporary art. There was a storm about Maggie Hamblin's sculpture dedicated to Mary Wollstonecroft in London. There's a constantly moving story about a shiny geometric monolith in the Utah desert that some say is a work by the artist John McCracken, and another similarly mysterious work in Romania. And in Venice, Italy, there's another furore about a work by the Swiss artist Christoph Buchel that was the most controversial work at the Venice Biennale in 2019. Barca Nostra was a rusting fishing boat which sank in the Mediterranean in 2015 with an estimated 800 to 1100 migrants from Libya on board. Only 28 survived. Buchel took the boat to the Arsenale in Venice in 2019 and it's still there and now the subject of a dispute between him and the Biennale. I talked to Louisa Buck about this work and Buchel's work in general before James Lingwood, the director of Art Angel, joined us to talk more about public art, its purpose and its audiences. Louisa, when I look back over the artnewspaper.com archive in, in relation to Christoph Buchel, what I found was a lot of fierce debates mentioned in the articles about him, often involving authorities as well as art world people. He wants to create this kind of controversy, doesn't he? So, so tell us about this latest controversy and why is it such a controversy? Well, it starts off back at the Venice Biennale in 2019 when we were all of us walking through the Arsenale and there was a vast rusting boat on the quayside. Now, in a water dock, that's not an unusual thing to see. So it looked kind of weirdly at home amongst all the other sort of naval paraphernalia around in the Arsenale. But then, of course, there was no notice, nothing to identify it. Um, If you were feeling diligent, you looked it up in the catalogue. But, you know, it was very mysterious. But, of course, word of mouth soon came through that this was indeed a Work, an artwork, not a piece of rusting boat left over by the Navy. It was Barca Nostra, it was called, and it was actually the very boat which had been leaving Libya for Italy, laden with well in excess, we don't know how many of a thousand immigrants trying to get to Italy. It collided with a Portuguese freighter, got into trouble and sank, killing everybody pretty much on board. I mean, it was an absolute, you know, 
atrocity slash disaster. The boat was then taken by the um, Italian Navy to Sicily, where there was an incredible, detailed, forensic investigation on all of the bodies of the victims, many of whom were trapped in the hull of the boat. They'd been packed in. It was a, you know, it was a trafficking boat. It was a horrific, horrific scenario. Um, there was a forensic, you know, detailed investigation as to who the identity of these people were. Many of their families were traced, and, and so they learned the terrible fate of their relatives. Now, I don't quite know how this happened, but then time passes um, from 2015. Somehow, a deal is struck with the Sicilian town of Augusta, where this boat had ended up in a naval base, to bring it to the Venice Biennale as an exhibit. Christophe Buchel had signed a contract with the town of Augusta that he could borrow the boat for a year. It would be exhibited in the Venice Biennale, and then he would return it a year later. So the boat's there. Everybody feels extremely conflicted about this. Some people said it was a brilliant idea that it shows how decadent the art world is, how decadent our world is, how uncaring we are. It was kind of appalling I felt that the boat was parked right by the cafe, so you sat swigging your Aperols and your, and your cappuccinos perhaps not knowing there was in effect you know, the site of a, of, a, of a mass atrocity, a mass grave right beside you. So was it making us think about our, our place in the world, our uncaring thought about you know, crises unfolding very close to us, or was was it an exploitative, um, opportunistic, attention-seeking, um, you know, profile-raising artwork by Christoph Buchel? And as you say, he does have form in this respect. He's done other things. He's crash-landed a mosque in Venice uh, inside a Catholic church for another Biennale for the Icelandic Pavilion um, several years ago. He also set up community centres. Um, he's done controversial other things in Tasmania we'll probably talk about in a minute. So, But this was a big one. And yes, it's very raw. And the debate and the controversy he still rages. But the latest part of this debate is, is that a year on from the Biennale, the boat is still there and yep. there's a dispute between the Biennale organisation and Buchel and his gallery. Well, absolutely, yes, because as I said, he signed a deal with the Sicilian town of Augusta, maybe you know, maybe money exchanged hands, I don't know. But anyway, but the deal was that the boat would then come back to Augusta, where apparently it was uh, intended to be the centrepiece for a memorial park, with the consent of the relatives. Also, in all the kind of rumblings around at the, at the time of the Biennale, it was stated that apparently the families had given their permission for this boat to be used, or some families had given their permission. I mean, God knows, you know, what the, what the specifics are, but there, there were talk of, of permission. But now there's the boat, the Biennale now say that they have been hassling Buchel since November last year to bring this boat back and to honour his agreement to honour the contract with the Sicilian town of Augusta. Augusta is saying they want the boat back as well. Now, sources close to Buchel say that, because he never talks to the press, which is another thing we can talk about in a minute, um, they say that apparently the boat was damaged in transit coming to Venice, so it's going to be impossible until the cradle that supports it is fixed for it to come back again to Augusta. So Buchel is now trying to get insurance to pay for this, either from the Biennale, who said no, go away, or probably rather more rudely, or indeed from the shipping company. But I mean, I would say that, you know, all the ethics about whether you actually show it in a Biennale or not, I felt squeamish. I think where dead people are concerned, it starts to get very problematic. But anyway, but all the, those ethics to one side, you honour the agreement to the families. You honour the agreement to the place from whence you lent it. And if and if the cradle got damaged, well, you cough up and pay for it, or you make your gallery, who are Hauser and Wirth, who are not short of a penny or two, to cough up and pay for it, you know. 
I draw lines, moral lines in the sand, whatever one feels about artworks, raising profile of terrible crises. Apparently there was talk about him taking the boat to Brussels to show how, how the, the EU have been ignoring the immigration crisis. I mean... You know, lofty motives, but, you know, this is a place where, you know, over a thousand people died. I think you've got to be delicate to what their families want and what what those needs are. So let's talk a bit more broadly about Buchel, because I think this is what, the reason that we wanted to talk about this is because he's such an interesting artist when it comes to the public domain, because actually the, the, the public reaction, the critical reaction, the, the storms, the furories around these works are as much part of the work as the as the sort of objects that that, that prompt all this reaction. So in a way, it, it is the kind of archetypal public art for the 21st century to a certain extent isn't it well that's what he says he says it's not the object it's the journey it's the process well you know when you're in tasmania and you set up a fake genetic testing for the local people saying are you of aboriginal descent or when you you know put the barca nostra this boat where many people died in the middle of a high-end art event or when you you know several years before put a mosque inside a Catholic church in Venice right by the Jewish ghetto. You know, you're being very provocative. And I think, yes, you are inciting debate, but, but, but you know, what happens is that he comes and makes all this flurry, refuses to speak to the press, parachutes in, does this, and then off he goes, you know, and you have... In the case of Tasmania, the local Aboriginal people were extremely offended by the fact they were being objectified as these kind of tokens of, you know, colonialism and with this fake genetic testing. I mean, yes, it was a very punchy point, but, you know, they were they were very offended. So actually that particular aspect of his project was shut down. There was a lot of offence again about the mosque and, you know, protests. And although the Muslim community were very happy, the Catholic Church wasn't. But, you know, where was Bukel where all this was around? Was he up there defending it? No, he'd pushed off to plan his next project and the curators had to deal with it and you know arguably also with Venice you know where is he he's not talking to the press you know maybe he's working behind the scenes to get it back the families want a memorial park they don't want their boat to be sitting there forever rusting away in the arsenale so I think it's problematic yes you know of course it's been provocative work it's politically punchy work it does draw attention to you know all sorts of really major issues, but I think the way he does it is very self-serving and, I would say, quite narcissistic. I think a key aspect of, of Bucher's work, and I've struggled with aspects of his work too, is that he takes a morally ambiguous position in issues where moral ambiguity is is not called for in any sense. I mean, I think with the project where he claimed those prototypes for Trump's border wall as pieces of land art that could, you know, and organised tours to go and see them, you know, and we've seen the abuses of of um, migrants to the United States on the US-Mexico border. And it's, it to me, that left profound distaste in my mouth because, again, Buchel was was absent from that project, you know, as a, as a sort of figurehead and wouldn't come out and address the actual issues that, that, that the work conjured. And I think that's, it's very easy. And in fact, I wonder if you've, you've seen that piece of writing from, I think her name is Elizabeth Pierce, who's the writer for, for Mona in Tasmania, where she said that him disappearing after he'd set up that project in Tasmania was itself a sort of colonial kind of response. There he goes, you know, back to Europe and leaves them with all this damage. Well, this is it. I mean, I think, you know, it's actually rather interesting to have the prototypes of Trump's appalling xenophobic wall. I mean, there it is. These, these great, big, high, extraordinary monoliths. There, there's, there's an argument 
argument to be made about framing them, discussing them, having them as a symbol, a lightning rod for discussion. There's also a conversation to be had, if indeed the families did agree to have Barca Nostra put in the Venice Biennale, with, I really would say, a label saying what it is, so you're not just tipping your Aperols over it. There's an argument to that. But absolutely, yes, I think, you know, the fact that he just hightails it off. I mean, these things are morally problematic. They are ambiguous. You know, the whole issue around these kinds of projects are highly problematic. So he has to stand up to my mind and be counted and talk about it and engage with the Aboriginal people, talk about how they feel about this faux genetic testing, have a conversation, broaden it out. But, you know, I think it's the arrogance of the artist, assuming that the artist is above this kind of, you know, getting down with grassroots, he set up a Piccadilly community centre in the central in Piccadilly Circus in the Hauser and Wirth Gallery. People came in to these community projects. So you had kind of poor people in a community centre, brilliantly recreated, going about, you know, having sort of meetings, coffees, addiction therapy, all different kinds of things in the central Zumba Piccadilly. Lessons Zumba stuff. lessons and all that kind of thing, you know, in the middle of Piccadilly. Now, you could argue that those people were being objectified. It was objectifying poor people as part of a kind of performative art project that, that was masquerading as a community centre. But I would argue those people, yes, it was very problematic but people could do it with their consent it's when you start doing stuff with dead people's families you know you've got to be very careful about how you pitch it and I think you know it's really interesting what he does but I think that he he does take an intellectually lazy kind of cop out by 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 leaving other people to actually deal with the with the hardcore consequences you know you can't just say it's the journey you have to actually be part of that journey yourself as the artist yeah, it's really interesting that, isn't it? And also interesting because the community centre in Piccadilly was the first piece that I saw of his work. And I sort of got his sardonic message and I appreciated it because we just elected a government in Britain at that time that was talking about a big society, but was also embarking on a pro- programme of austerity that was, was anything but a big society. And so I kind of enjoyed that sardonic effect. But the more and more I've seen of Buchel's work, in a way, the more problematic his work has become to me. And I think you and I are both very much on artists' sides, aren't yeah. we? You know, we, we we believe in artists and we believe in their in their integrity. But Buchel definitely confounds me on that point. I, I find myself really struggling to defend him where I would normally reach to defend artists in a more general sense. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I would, I would, you know, argue the right for any artist to make artwork and comment about whatever they choose, even if I find that profoundly distasteful. I would even say, you know, getting poor people in to have their, you know, drug therapy or their Zumba class or their coffee morning or whatever in the middle of Piccadilly, being objectified in this way, provided they were in the full knowledge of what was happening and that it was part of an artwork and it was part of an artwork about Sodom broken Britain and about the kind of rank hypocrisy that pervades capitalist society, the market economy. And indeed, you know, even if the families had agreed to have Barca Nostra toured around, there was some talk about him wanting to sail it back as an activist. But, you know, you can be an artist activist by all means, but, you know, you've got to pick your targets. You cannot exploit people. You cannot exploit people who are in no position to actually give a comment one way or the other. And even if the work's problematic, I don't mind that. But I do think that, you know, he is being very cowardly in this respect and actually not facing the consequences. I mean, I know that artists don't have to do PR for their work either. Why should they? The artwork should stand for itself. But when the artwork is so concerned with communicating, reaching out, providing heated debate and controversy, you can't just go, oops, sorry, I've done it. I've done it now. I'm part of the process. Goodbye. You have to, I think, you know, take some responsibility. 
Now, joining us now is James Lingwood from Art Angel, and he has been involved in quite a few controversial projects, not least House by Rachel Whiteread and others. So James is going to join us now to talk about this issue a bit more widely. James, I wonder if you have any thoughts on the latest developments in the Christoph Buchel story. Uh, well, I think it just suggests that, that context is everything, really. You know, I'd sort of forgotten about it, like most of us had um, over the past year, and I didn't even know it was just sitting as a hulk, as a sculptural hulk in Venice still. But it reminded me of, of, of another sculptural project, not really proposed as a pub, well, it was initially proposed as a public art project, which was Jeremy Deller's Baghdad Car Bomb, which actually um, also, I mean, it was, a, as you know, it was a car bomb which went off in a book market in Baghdad. And Jeremy's initial proposal was, to, was for it to be situated on the fourth plinth. And then it wasn't awarded that uh, commission, but then it, it found a home in the Imperial War Museum, you know, uh, amongst all sorts of other weaponry involved in killing people. And, you know, it seemed to me, and I think to many other, you know, viewers like to be a really interesting, thought-provoking, but not sort of superficially provocative way of doing it. But of course, it was something which involved a lot of people being killed. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, he toured that around America as well as a public art project. Initially, that's right. And and again, so and, 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 you know, one of the key things about Buchel that we've just been discussing is that Buchel is not visually present as part of the projects. He allows the projects to happen and then sta- and stands back. Whereas Jeremy Deller, in the, in the case of that work, was fundamental to its delivery. He was there with that sculpture as it toured America. And I wonder if that, do you, do you think that's part of it, Louisa, that there, in a way Jeremy was accountable for that work? In this I think it's absolutely crucial. I completely agree with James. Context is absolutely, is, is everything. And I think that Jeremy toured it round, I mean, very bravely, actually, on a flatbed truck all round America with a member of the American military, with, with somebody who, who's, who'd been there on the spot, a local witness as well. You know, so you had all that, and then, and then he actually donated the piece. He'd paid for it to be shipped back from Baghdad, and then he donated it, gave it to the to the Imperial War Museums. He didn't make any money out of it, and he was very present, not as somebody as a kind of apologist, but somebody who was happy to engage with all the different debates. You know, with 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 various kind of Iraqi people, with 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 American military, with pacifists, with 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 people who are pro the military, and you know, he was there as the artist taking responsibility for this project. No, that's absolutely true. It's like not just the context, but in that case, the conversation made it a kind of uh, morally viable proposition. Whereas Buchel kind of said, you know, the thing about Buchel was he actually, he refused to let the Biennale authorities put a label even by Barker Nostra. I mean, he, he christened it, gave it the title as well. You had to, you could only read about it in the catalogues. It meant that you actually had to buy the catalogue, you know, look it up and see it. So being willfully obscure, it seemed to me, for some sort of weird purist motivation that was his alone. So, yeah, he wasn't having that conversation. One of the things it exposes, James, is this, there's a sort of variety of all sorts of contracts, some written and very official, and then some uh, verbal or otherwise, just there's all sorts of relationships that, that, that come into question when you do a public art project, right? And the process of negotiation is very, very complex. So can you say something about that? Because a lot of your job must be dealing with that kind of stuff. Would that be fair? Well, actually, not that much of my job is really involved with dealing with this kind of 
public art, strange enough. So, and even then, you know, you you kind of often involved engaging, whether you want to be working by stealth, and sometimes that can be interesting, or working through consensus. I think the proposition becomes always more important when when the work is intended to be in a place for quite a long period of time. So, you know, there's more kind of latitude when you're involved in in uh, temporary installations or interventions, and much less so when they're, they're meant to be long-term or permanent. And then there's a whole range of, I mean, not just contractual stuff, but, you know, trying to sort of draw together a kind of, like to sort of build a kind of microclimate around the project, which which enables it to be possible. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in the foundations of, of your involvement with Art Angel because it seems to me that Art Angel is almost an anti-public sculpture <laughs> uh, organisation to a certain degree because precisely what you're saying, that, that on the one hand it's the sort of temporary projects, but also it's how you, in a way, you don't do conventional public sculptural projects. Can you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, probably this was uh, thinking that we had, you know, two or three decades ago, where, you know, we felt that the possibility, you know, for making, enabling artists to make really interesting work outside of the, the gallery spaces was so circumscribed by the constraints placed on it by permanent commissioning that we just thought, let's take a step to the side. Let's not think about permanence let's not think about uh, permission always and let's think about making things happen and then engaging with responses as and after they'd happen. I mean, I, I think that the context has shifted quite a bit and I think the imperatives to really engage thoughtfully with communities of interest are now much stronger than they probably were like a couple of decades ago. I mean, a fairly obvious sort of reference point, but when we, we were involved with commissioning Rachel Whiteree's house, you know, actually we did have to get permissions from local neighbourhood groups and against gritted teeth from the local council and others. But there was a sort of sense that that was as far as we needed to go, which was to get the permissions. <laughs> and a kind of nervousness about going further than that in, in case we... We kind of met hostility in a way that would have made the realisation of the work impossible. But I remember at the time how extraordinary it was that, because I remember covering it for the radio, how extraordinary it was that now such a kind of classic, that the, 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 the cast, the mould, the mould cast of the inside of a house in a public space, you know, this, this beautiful sort of monolith that appeared caused so much fury and <laughs> anger. There were questions in the house and it was only ever going to be temporary anyway, yeah, James, yeah, it wasn't was. it? So it wasn't like it was going to be there forever. But I look back now and, you know, it seems classical and beautiful like a cenotaph, you know, and the fact that it caused so much fury and so much anger, it's, I mean, the world has changed a lot in the way it views public sculpture, it seems to me. Well, it's certainly true that when you, when you look at it now, you just see this very quiet, mute memorial. And it is, it's hard to imagine, as you say, the sound and fury, which, you know, it was just like a lightning conductor, wasn't it? But what I wanted to refer to, just to pick up on this this kind of engagement with uh, communities of interest was a, a project which Art Angel was in the process of making with Mike Nelson, 
And I don't think Mike will, will mind me talking about it, although it was a painful experience. This was a project which had been intended, a sort of remodelling of one of the blocks of housing on the Haygate estate. And for listeners who uh, are, known, are in London, will know that the Haygate estate is an extremely contested issue. It was a very large post-war area of social housing, um, which was condemned by the council and then scheduled for redevelopment and with some really awful stories about how some of the people living there were decanted to housing quite a long way away from Elephant and Castle. And Mike had a proposal which we secured agreement with from the council and also from the new developers to remodel one of the blocks into a sculpture. It's a giant mountain, wasn't it? It'd be a great giant a ziggurat of, of rubble, wasn't it? It was a ziggurat, um, inside of which uh, there would have been uh, playing some sort of film of the demolition and the construction of the work, and uh, maybe, maybe more as well. So it, it kind of doubled up. And in a way, at least partly, it was, I think, intended as a memorial to a certain period of social housing, <laughs> you know, which maybe in a time will become every bit as mysterious as more ancient ziggurat structures. But we, although we, we, we had a level of engagement with representatives of the local community, you know, we didn't work that through uh, successfully. Uh, I don't know how we could have. And, and in a sense, their uh, hostility to the project, as it was beginning to happen, we were on site, then kind of made the council withdraw... <laughs> their permission, because it was, had become already too contentious. Now, you know, obviously we're interested in works of art which have the capacity to be contentious. I mean, you know, it's not like you're trying to form a consensus immediately. Um, but sometimes if the contention happens before the work is actually realised, it, you know, can kill it dead. But it's really interesting, that project, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm pleased you, you raised it, because... You know, any all three of us know Mike and and know that his intentions in that in terms of that project were utterly honourable and considering those communities. But also because there is such a fraught relationship at the moment between community, between development, between different constituencies involved in that project. In a way. It, the the tension was so high, and, we, and after all, the I mean, you you look at the arguments against that project, and it's all about people's lives and people's lives being uprooted and 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 destroyed by rampant development in London. Well, it was, a, and, and the fact that those estates were being destroyed, which is what people didn't want to happen. So to make a memorial, an artwork out of basically the fabric of their lives, generations sometimes that had been destroyed. Was, was so raw, wasn't it? It was so raw and so terrible that, that, that it would be almost excruciating, I think, for the people whose houses would have made up part of that sculpture. And, and, and all of this brings into question about public art and public sculpture's relationship with, with community. And I'm intrigued, for instance, by talking about a, a very different kind of project, which is this Maggie Hambling sculpture, which, is, which appeared in Newington Green in London and created an enormous stir recently on social media. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a work that went through all sorts of processes. And, um, even, you know, there was a public vote and there was a committee and, you know, a, a competition and all sorts of things. But it, it again confirmed that 
when we talk about public sculpture, we're talking about, yes, the immediate communities, but also wider communities, you know. And there was a strong reaction, for instance, from certain feminist commentators that felt that it misrepresented Mary Wollstonecraft. So I suppose what I'm getting at is public sculpture and public art has this capacity to inflame in a way that often art in museum just simply can't. Um, James, do you want to say something? Yes, it, it's, it does have that capacity <laughs> to inflame. And people are very quick to draw judgment on works which somehow kind of they feel are on their territory, either in terms of subject matter or locality, in a way that just simply wouldn't happen. I mean, if, if, if that work had been presented in a, a gallery space in North London... You know, people would have just said, well, that's a really wonderful sculpture or that's not a very wonderful sculpture. <laughs> and we would have left it at that. So it was, it was just simply the matter of, again, where it was placed, which seems to have caused a, a lot of offence. Well, and the aspect of permanence as well. I think that comes into play too. I mean, whether one thinks it's you know, an appalling piece of kitsch or a wonderful piece of female affirmation, you know, if it was going to be there for a year or six months or its departure was was always written into its existence, then that would have a very different kind of response, I think, to the fact that, you know, to all intents and purposes, whatever permanent means, it was intended to be there in perpetuity. I wonder also about one of the things it seems to me that people have been interested in in that context and also in the context of Mark Quinn um, installing by stealth a sculpture of a Black Lives Matter protester on the empty plinth vacated by the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol... Is that is that very many of the voices against it said who who asked this person to speak for us and certainly in, t- in the in the case of Mark Quinn it was a very self appointed and many of us would argue very pompous uh, attitude that so, so he was going to speak he was going to be the sculptor that spoke for the post Edward Colston era in Bristol and of course there was a, a really significant reaction to that but again you know with public sculpture it's how is it that a particular voice ends up speaking for that community or representing a particular person. Louisa? It's incredibly complex. And again, it brings into into play the whole notion of the artist's ego. And I, I, I bring Christoph Buchel shoulder to shoulder with Mark Quinn here, where I think artists sometimes just lose the plot. You know, they, they get so... I, mean, I think, you know, Quinn, Quinn thought he was doing something really honourable and helpful. He'd worked with the woman who was, who was you know, depicting the work and he felt that he was doing something, you know, really helpful. It was kind of so way off, the, way off the mark. Maggie Hamling, likewise, you know, you've got to be very careful producing images of naked women in public sculpture these days, even if it's by another woman, you know. It's, it's, you've got to think about this stuff a bit. I'm not saying you should self-censor, but I think you've got to be thoughtful about your intent and these different kinds of aspects of what you're doing. And public sculpture, yes, it speaks for many voices. People feel tremendous ownership. I mean, Edward Coulston, that sculpture should have been addressed, you know, decades ago. We know this. And the fact it hadn't hadn't been was why it got toppled. And it's going to end up now in a museum, not still bedaubed and, and, and prone and not in a public place. And James is quite right. It takes a lot of the heat off if something's put framed in the museum and in that kind of context. Museums are still public, but it's a different kind of public. It's not the fabric of people's lives. It's not dealing with the stuff of their existence and them having this kind of very particular relationship when it's out in the world. James, I wonder if you can say something about about that about, about embedding artists in a community or, or or somehow prompting the engagement between an artist and a space. Yeah, I mean, in the particular case of the Mark Quinn sculpture in Bristol, I mean, it's just really hard to disentangle 
what Louise is kindly saying is an honourable motive from from opportunism, really. Um, well, I think it probably was opportunistic, and, yeah. you know, in such a highly charged and loaded space, you know, you can't just <laughs> pile in and put something in there. I mean, I, you know, something like that probably does need a more measured approach to kind of have different kinds of proposals, you know, maybe some temporary ideas, some ways of of framing the monument. I mean, one of my favourite ongoing acts of dissidence in relation to public sculpture is the sculpture outside Glasgow Museum of Modern Art, which almost always has a transport cone on its head. And that, but no one bothers, the, you know, the council don't bother to take it off. It's kind of publicly condoned dissidence in a way. Well, we've seen an awful lot of face masks on public yeah, sculptures I mean, during the pandemic. And I like great. the fact that Maggie Hamling's Mary Wollstonecroft has had a T-shirt put onto her. And Anthony Gormley's Angel of the North is endlessly getting sort of tampered with. In fact, you, I remember, I remember Anthony Gormley also in Derry, Londonderry, doing a, a, a project with you where, where actually the sculptures were ne- got necklaced. They had tyres put round their necks, which, I, to my mind, gave them a potency and a power and impact which was way beyond their original state. Just to go back to Bristol, I mean, I think the the best proposal that came out very quickly afterwards was Banksy's idea for the Colston statue, which was simply to shift it so it was memorialised as a statue in the process of being toppled to freeze that moment, which actually I think would have been really great. So. Does that mean, are you, are you likely to be contacting Mr Banksy and, and, and well, to, to realise that project? I don't think Banksy needs Art Angel. We did try and contact him about 20 years ago, but weren't very <laughs> successful. So. But I also think what would be so good for that Colston site would be for rotating sculptures and works by artists of all different inclinations, desires, communities, you know, and have that sense of it being a sense of spectrum. You know, I think I'm a bit squeamish about permanence these days. I mean, maybe Coulston on the tilt would be a great idea, but it's just unfortunate that it's Banksy, who's also very opportunistic <laughs> in many respects, <laughs> who, who proposed it. I think, you know, but the, the, the whole idea of artists like Quinn, I mean, I, I think it was an utterly opportunistic thing to do. I think artists have to be very careful about when they're, when they're working in the public realm. You don't want to get diluted in something completely bland and meaningless, but also there has to be sensitivity to communities and community thoughts and, and, ag- and agendas and, and, and intentions. I mean, there's, you know, there's been some interesting work done in relation to memorials and sculptures from the fascist era in Germany, I- Italy. I'm afraid I can't remember the name of the artist, but where a sort of fascist memorial was, was reframed and, as it were, retuned, given a contemporary voice, but without erasing what had been there before, which seems to me to be a very neat way of addressing some of these deep traumas, if you can do it well. Or allowing other artists to mess with the work. I'm thinking of Hugh Locke also, the British artist who has had a long history of, of wonderfully messing with colonial mm. Columbus sculpture, the Coulston sculpture, adorning them with cowrie shells, you know, the kind of currency mm. of slavery mm. or, you know, re- extraordinary ritualistic costumes. So he's, he's inputting his voice and other voices onto these sculptures and re- reframing them and redefining them. So I think, you know, artists allow it being allowed to mess with, with, with sculpture as well is another way of, of making this kind of thing, you know, fresh and have proper relevance and meaning. 
to conclude, I feel like we could talk about this this uh, subject forever. But I, but but I, I wonder actually, so much of our discussion here today has been about positioning and 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 voices and am- the amplification of those voices. Because of course, it's. I mean, James, you will know better than any. When you want to work with an artist, you have to allow them the freedom to engage with the space and 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 the freedom to to express themselves but also they are going to naturally meet other forces which they need to be respectful of and that seems to me to be an extraordinarily fine balance it is and it's a complex navigation or negotiation through (laughs) through various constraints through through various Interests, you know. I think this is where this is where sometimes the the job of an artist involves not only the kind of conceptualizing of a of a sculpture, let's say, but also it's about negotiating the process. <laughs> I dare say that's often been the case historically. I don't think we should just assume that this is a kind of a contemporary challenge only. A final word from you, Louisa. One of my all-time favourite works was Mark Wallinger's Eke Homo, the first work for the fourth plinth, which was a a, a human-sized cast of a man on the plinth, naked. You couldn't really tell what race he was. You couldn't tell really what... He was quite contemporary, had a a, a wreath of barbed wire around his head. It was... He looked puny, insignificant, but incredibly powerful on that plinth. Christians loved it. Atheists loved it. It was a really powerful piece because it acted as a lightning rod for all different kinds of thoughts. It was a wonderful anti-monumental monument. It was. It was about vulnerability rather than power. And it was very perfectly poised conceptually and physically on the edge of the plinth. nice to end on discussing a work that we all love um thank you james thank you louisa this has been really interesting thank you okay great nice to see you both you can read christina ruiz's report on the buccal row on our website or on our app for ios which you can get from the app store if you'd like to read more about art angels current and past projects go to artangel.org.uk We'll talk to Olaf Breuning about his project in Miami in a moment, but first, here are some of the top stories other than those about public art on the Art Newspaper's website this week. The Tate has announced plans to reduce its workforce by 12%, equivalent to around 120 full-time roles due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The institution has subsequently launched a voluntary redundancy scheme in all departments and at all levels to save the £4.8 million required to survive the crisis, according to senior museum management. Workers willing to take voluntary redundancy or consider early retirement, reduced working hours or a career break are encouraged to take up the offer, but compulsory redundancies could follow if the museum group fails to save enough. Earlier this year, 313 redundancies were announced across Tate Enterprises, which operates retail, catering and publishing services at the four Tate galleries in London, Liverpool and St Ives. The Cuban activist and artist Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara is in a critical condition after going on hunger strike for more than seven days. The hunger strike began as part of an escalating row over alleged human rights abuses by Cuban state security. Otero Alcantara is a member of an art collective known as the San Isidro Movement, which has been campaigning against the arrest and imprisonment of two rappers, Didier Almagro and Denis Solis Gonzalez. The latter received an eight-month prison sentence for confronting a police officer who entered his home without a warrant. 
And finally, Irina Alexandrovna Antonova, the president of the Pushkin State Museum of Fine Arts in Moscow, died this week at the age of 98. Russian news agencies reported that she died of coronavirus in addition to heart disease. Her life at the museum spanned the second half of the 20th century, beginning in 1945 under Joseph Stalin before she was appointed director in 1961, a position that she held remarkably until 2013. You can read these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This holiday season, Christie's is the destination for luxury. From a 43.1 carat cashmere sapphire and a pink gold Patek Philippe reference 3800 to an Hermes diamond Himalaya Birkin, the highlights from the live and online auctions range from rare and unique to the extraordinary. To view the works in person, Christie's welcomes you by appointment beginning this week at their galleries in the heart of Rockefeller Centre. In the meantime, browse the sales online and explore related features at christies.com luxury. Before we go on, do make sure you catch up with a new series of our other podcast, A Brush With, in which I have in-depth conversations with artists about their influences and cultural experiences. The first episode of this second series, A Brush With Ragnar Kjartansson, is out now. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're currently listening. Now, the New York-based Swiss-born artist Olaf Breuning has just finished installing the interactive sculpture The Cat at the Christine E. Lynn Rehabilitation Centre in Miami. The $400,000 public artwork was created through the city's Art in Public Places programme and funded using a percentage of the project's taxpayer-backed construction costs. The large concrete work features a face based on Paul Clay's 1922 painting Head of a Man Going Senile, a regular motif in Bruining's art, as well as moving elements that can be manipulated by patients as part of their physical therapy, or by any curious passers-by. The work's being unveiled officially on the 5th of December as part of Miami Art Week. Our America's editor, Helen Stoilus, spoke to Olaf about the work. So how did you go about creating this work? Why did you want to make it a work that people would use in their therapy? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, of course, it was always from the beginning on clear it is in front of a rehabilitation uh, center. I felt it makes sense to do something what pleases me aesthetically, but also maybe helps people do Uh, do small exercises if they do it or not I don't know but uh, even if they wouldn't do it it just looks good Um, but if they do it then it would be a kind of both thing motivation served like my aesthetical and the, the, the one for the people getting better so it's got it's got these kinds of poles on it with weights that can be moved up and down and it seems like it has um circular pieces that that you turn I'm assuming yeah from photos how did you come up with these elements? Was that working with um, physical therapists, with doctors to to figure out what kinds of tools would be good to add to it? Yes. So I, I focused really on, of course, on very small movements, not like that someone has like a, a treadmill or some, something or like a full body exercise. So they're like mostly like, you know, for the, for the hands or for the, for the arms or shoulders, small things. So I came up with an idea and then I, I went back and forth with um, two specialists at the hospital and they finally approved it and said, that's, that's good. Then I got the green light to, to produce it like this. Uh, because I'm not a doctor, of course, so I cannot. But, but I, had, I, I was good. I think my, my first approach to it was very good. So I, I, I kind of proud that I came up with an idea what they liked. And it, has it been kind of tested out by patients yet? Have you had any, any feedback about it 
being used by anyone as part of their th physical therapy? Well, would, would you ask me in another time? Maybe. But I think during <laughs> Corona, I don't think people like to touch unnecessary objects other people touch. So <laughs> I'm not sure. And I, uh, I think Miami didn't have such a good, good last few months neither. So um, I don't think it was probably used a lot, but it will be. It will be. And it's going to be open this week. Is that right? And then it'll be kind of available to the public as well as to patients yes. at the rehab center. And can you talk a little bit aesthetically about the work, the inspiration of the Paul Clay painting, why you decided to do it as a cat? Um, what was your kind of thinking behind behind the entire kind of like form of it? Well, you know, I, I try to um, repeat certain elements in my art through the time. And uh, the, the Paul Klee face is really a simple connection. I mean, I grew up with uh, that painting at home, not the original, just a poster. But this kind of was engraved in my brain since I was like a child. And I always, when I saw that painting, I saw like, oh, that face is so appealing to me. Like many things we find appealing experienced in our past out of what reason ever. But so this was just for me something I, I felt um, uh, connected to. And then I started to do 2008, the first sculpture where I use, would use that face. And that was also in Miami, uh, Miami Beach uh, during the Art Basel Art Fair. I did an enormous big sand sculpture. It's like, I don't know how many tons of sand. And this was not a cat, it was a, a large breast woman lying on the beach with that face. And then I, I used the face another time in Zurich for uh, a sculpture called The Animal, what is kind of close to the cat, uh, could be a brother or sister of this sculpture. And then I used it a third time here in Miami and I might use it in future uh, in another occasion. Just something what maybe when someone is interested in 10, 20, 30 years about my work can look back and think, oh yeah, that came up there and there and there and it would have a, have a, a small timeline in it. Yeah, just I, I use stuff because I love them and I always loved the Paul Klee, uh, his work in general, but then also like that specific painting. And as an artist, what's the appeal of doing public art? You said you, you've done other public sculptures, including in Miami. What is it about doing these kinds of um, large public works that appeals? And is there anything that kind of doesn't appeal? Do you ever get any kind of blowback from some of your works or criticism or... Oh, yeah, well, I'm, first of all, I don't really react um, heavily to criticism. You know, I, I always assume that 7 billion uh, voices or 8 billion soon voices on the planet. I mean, I, don't, I couldn't care less about people not liking something. So long I like it, I'm, I'm happy and the people I, I work with like it, that's good. But um, the other thing is, you know, um, as an artist, when you want to make large scale sculptures, you need a, a lot of funding. And I did in my past a few things um, outside of public art where the galleries or myself would put money into it. But I think the, just the, 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 the budget of public art is really attractive to make bigger things. And it's not a motivation of me. I'm not an artist who want to make bigger and bigger things. But um, since I work on so many levels from very fragile drawings to big sculptures, I sometimes just really enjoy to have another thinking about making an artwork to have a, yeah, to be able to work with tons of, of concrete and, and uh, you know, like just this, this is a different approach, what is really refreshing. And uh, I think the only downside on public art is not the criticism of uh, positive criticism, it's more like you don't have the 100% the freedom you have as an artist when you do your work in your studio. So you have a lot of people included 
uh, giving their their opinions and comments and regulations and and that sometimes can be uh, rather a challenge but um uh, in Miami this was a very good experience sometimes it's more difficult sometimes it's easier Well, I'm looking forward to seeing this work when I'm in Miami next. Thank you, Olaf. Thank you so much for speaking with us. No problem. No problem. It was a pleasure. You can see the cat at the Christine E. Lynn Rehabilitation Center in Miami from this Saturday. Now it's time for the work of the week. The artist Tom Sachs currently has an exhibition at Aquavella in New York and he's chosen to talk to us about Piet Mondrian's Broadway Boogie Woogie, part of the permanent collection at the city's Museum of Modern Art, which Sachs recreated using colourful strips of tape on plywood in the 1996 piece Victory Boogie Woogie. To see an image of the work, go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Can you tell me a bit about why you chose that work? I know it's got a really early connection for you um, as an artist. Well, I was kind of obsessed with the De Stiel movement when I was in college and I was studying architecture and sculpture because like the Bauhaus, there was this um, Gesamtkunstwerk. They did everything. They did paintings, they did sculptures, they did furniture, they did obviously architecture and you know performance and stuff. But... Um, of the De Stiel movement, it was Rietveld and Mondrian who were the two dominant figures. And when I f- first moved to New York, half a dozen years later after I'd learned about this stuff, I opened my studio near Canal Street. And I really loved Mondrian. And around that time, there was this Museum of Modern Art retrospective. And uh, I can't remember the exact year, but it's it was like the main... Mondrian retrospective and the and the still the best Mondrian book is that catalog. It was 1995, and uh, I thought to myself, I really want that painting, Broadway Boogie Woogie, and it was the apotheosis of the show. There's one even better actually called Victory Boogie Woogie, but it was unfinished. It was a lozenge shaped. It's like the same thing but diagonal, and you can see. It, Victory Boogie Woogie is really my favorite, just because it was the unfinishedness with little bits of tape made it special. But Broadway Boogie Woogie was the, is the last and most fully realized work. I think if he had lived longer, Victory could have been even better. It's like a shame. I feel like he was cut down right as he was like hitting his prime. But uh, I love the painting, and I went to visit it a bunch of times, and I thought to myself, well, I'd love to have that in my life, but... I don't think going down to Wall Street and organizing money would be an authentic use of my time, which is what it would take to get one of those. You'd have to spend a lot of time organizing funds so you could have a, a, one of those Mondrians in your house. And um, at the same time, my studio was near Canal Street, and there were a lot of fake Hermes bags and Gucci sunglasses and... and um, I was really impressed with the quality of them. I mean, sure, they weren't as good as, the, you know, the $5 ones weren't as good as a $500 one, but the $5 ones, if you left a pair of $5 sunglasses behind a restaurant, you'd just move on with your day. If you left $500 sunglasses, you might be motivated to go back and see if they're still there. 
And I thought that those sunglasses own your ass, you know, and, and, and there's, an, there's an advantage to something that's, that's five bucks. There's more freedom to it. So it was around that sort of realization about um, my consumerism and my addiction to status stuff helped me to go look at that Mondrian and make my own. But I wasn't interested in making a forgery, but a model. And so my Broadway boogie woogie is uh, not made of oil and canvas. It's made of gaffer's tape on plywood. And those are materials that I feel much closer to. If you could see behind me, there's a, this is just one of my four tape libraries in the studio. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is quite the tape collection you've got. That's just the one in this room, but I've got a few more. Lots of colors. The full rainbow. That when I travel, I go to hardware stores, so I've got every color that duct tape comes in. By the way, duct tape comes in every color except gold, and I, I think that's because um, duct tape represents America's um, intolerance for fine craftsmanship and for repair. Americans don't like to repair, so duct tape is like the minimal job. And, and in Europe, uh, duct tape for many g- generations was called American tape. Oh. Which is a duct tape for a couple dozen years has been called uh, American tape. There's probably more to say about Victory Boogie Woogie, and, and, and that's that once I started making my own Mondrians out of, out of gaffer's tape and plywood, I started to open up my, my consciousness to um, this idea of sympathetic magic. The idea is um, if, you, if you don't have something and you want it, do your best to make it as a way of accessing its power. You know, like a voodoo doll is a form of sympathetic magic or an ex-voto that you would pray to to make part of your body heal. Um, and in a lot of ways, the making my own Broadway boogie-woogie helped me to become a fully realized artist because I was making works of art that had a, a high degree of authenticity and um, that it was really mine. Sure, it was Mondrian's composition, but I had found a way to make it my own. And if you go to see the show that's up right now at Aquavella Gallery, you'll see a dozen paintings that use that same basic strategy that I've been doing for since 1991, which is to make the things that I want and find ways of making them real. Like the American flag is the ultimate symbol of power globally and terror. And it's a symbol of what I'm most proud of the freedom of speech in america and what i'm most ashamed of is is institutionalized racism that is pernicious and persists to 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 today to other status icons of candy and the best ice maker and air force one and uh you know even the uh, the nasa icon which is the this the 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 sort of the the most status brand name behind science if you're going to label it give a status you would you'd put the um the nasa meatball on your van or your notebook or your brain absolutely and do you still have um victory boogie woogie your version do you still have that work i have a version of is it called new york city 2 unfinished which is in that same very late, like last three paintings, I don't think I possess Victory Boogie Woogie anymore, which is a shame. But the thing about being a maker is that it, it might start as desire for um, 
uh, you know, greedy consumerism, ambition for collecting things. But uh, my, but the, the love comes from the making and the, and the, the energy is in the moment that the thing is made. And even when you spend so much time studying, I went to the Museum of the Modern Art so many times to look at Victory Boogie, the pleasure of, and the privilege of my role or my job as an artist is getting to spend time with things in the world and study them and understand them and get inside the head of the maker. So in a way, as much as when I was making it or desire before I started to make it, I really wanted it. But once I finished, I kind of like got it out of my system. And it's not important to me. So you don't go visit anymore? It's still in MoMA, isn't it? I mean, it's still hanging in the galleries. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I go see it, it's like, you know, it's like rekindling an old flame or something. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very romantic. But I meant that my version. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, my version of it in a way isn't, it is important, but in a way it's like, if I run into one of mine at a, one of the, the one that I made, it's also very romantic and exciting. It's probably more exciting, to be honest, to see one of mine, but I guess my point was only about physically possessing it. I'm, I'm, right. I, I'm ex- extremely materialistic, but not possessive at all. Thank you, Tom. I think that's um, that's Welcome. that's a great note to end on. <laughs> okay, cool. Tom Sachs' handmade paintings is at Aquavella in New York until the 18th of December, and you can find out more about the Mondrian work at MoMA.org. And that's it for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page, and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so. Please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks to Louisa and James, to Helen and Olaf and to Tom. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.